Thank you, Pastor Mark, and young people for your participation today. And uh, it's my joy to pinch hit for the Teen Week speaker. Do pray for this week. It's an important week of ministry in the lives of young people. And as they've illustrated so well uh, with this last sketch, uh, certainly we live in a world full of needy people. Uh, Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Fathers, we open your, your word today. Use it well within us. Thank you for the joy of gathering on this Sunday morning in this uh, heat of summer week, and I just pray that uh, we would be encouraged, we would be strengthened, and as you so often do as we gather like this, you use it to grow us, to challenge us, to convict us. Please bless these young people, Lord, with a big week of ministry ahead. I pray that you'll use your word in a great way to challenge the hearts and minds of young people. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray now, committing ourselves to the hearing and the doing of your word. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you've seen these books for dummies. Are you familiar with them? (laughs) Books for dummies. There's a whole series of them. One that I was uh, easily uh, able to pull off the shelf was Windows XP for dummies. All right. And then one that I had in my personal library in my world religion section and uh, different faith section was Catholicism for dummies. Now, you need to understand that these books aren't really written for dummies. Um, That's a loose translation of the word, and the idea is it's for people who want to know more than they know, but they don't really know if they can learn more, and it's kind of hard stuff for them. And so it's stuff that's made easy for them, for dummies. It's it's not a slam. It's uh, to help you realize, I can learn this. And each of these books are written by experts in their field so that people can very easily understand these things. For example, my Catholicism for Dummies book is actually written by a couple of Roman Catholic priests who uh, clearly teach what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about their doctrine. And so it's helpful for those who don't know about that to be able to open it up and get an accurate understanding in a very simple way. There's all kinds of books in that series. There's Gardening for Dummies. There's Parenting for Dummies. There's cooking for dummies. There's just all kinds. You've probably seen them. Well, this morning, in in standing in for the Teen Week speaker, I thought that it would be good for us to be challenged in the area of God's will, particularly as we think about young people. So I've titled this morning's message, God's Will for Dummies. That doesn't mean that young people are dummies. I think more than any other demographic and any other group, Teenagers are living at a time in their lives where their decisions today are going to affect the way they live tomorrow. Lots of times, the things that we decide to do now, the direction that we're in, the course and direction of our lives is established by the decisions that we make, say, between 15 and 25 in our youth. At a time when perhaps you could argue we are um, not as well equipped as we might be later on to make better decisions. How many of you... If you had to go back and start your life over again, would only do it if you could do it with the insight and knowledge that you have now. Who wants to go repeat all those mistakes, right? And so I think that a a subject that is so important for young people to consider is God's will for their lives. You know what else I think? I think that's a pretty important subject for adults to consider. Uh, Would you agree with that? What is God doing in your life? What is God doing in my life? What is God's will for my life? When we open God's Word, we find that it's actually a pretty big subject. It's um, difficult to exhaust it. And in fact, we could spend an entire semester in a classroom discussing God's will, and many good books have been written on it. This morning, we have just a few minutes to bump into this important subject. So in our 
message today, God's will for dummies, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah? That's an Old Testament minor prophet book. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. That's kind of the order of those minor prophets there. If you go to the middle of your Bible, find Matthew and go to the left, and you'll come to Jonah eventually. It's just a small book of only four chapters. Let me remind you before we read chapter 1 of a couple things. One is that Jonah was a man of God. Uh, The way that he responds to the Word of God puts sometimes a big question mark over his integrity as a man of God. But Jonah was a man of God. He was a prophet. A prophet in these days, keeping in mind that um, the, the Bible as we have it, God's Word revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, written down by men of old, so that we have the mind of God in our hands, was not complete. There were parts of it. And uh, there are parts of the Bible that Jonah would have, have had, uh, parts of the writings of Moses, parts of the writings of the Psalms, things like that, that they would have understood were the Scriptures. And Jonah was a prophet. He had some of the Word of God in writing, but God, at this time, used men and women on occasion, but men called prophets to receive a word from God and then to deliver it to the people. And that was the role of the prophet to be the voice of God, to communicate the message of God so that the people of God knew the will of God. And Jonah was a prophet. The second thing you need to understand, and we'll just get this down before we move into our passage, is that where God tells Jonah to go is a place called Nineveh. It's, it's an Assyrian city, and, and Bible students believe that it's likely that it was the metropolitan area of the world of that day. That is, that it was likely to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, city in the known world of that day. You need to know it was a big city. It was big in the sense that they've, un- they've dug it up and they've learned that it had eight miles of stone wall all the way around it. And that stone wall sometimes in some points reached as high as 100 feet high. That is a high wall. And it was a circumference of about eight miles It was surrounded by a moat, you can picture that, but it was a huge moat, uh, up to 150 feet wide and almost 60 feet deep. It is said then in in about a 60 mile radius around that lived some 600,000 people. So somewhere around 600,000 people, something under a million, lived in this stronghold city and in this big area. The other thing you need to know about these guys, the Ninevites, is that they were bad, bad people. They were very wicked, they were very mean, they were bloodthirsty, they were ruthless, they were very intimidating, and they couldn't care less about God. But God saw them, God understood them, and God had allowed their sin to fill up. Do you know that God does that? God doesn't always zap people for their sin immediately. God is a patient God. God wants all people everywhere to repent and come to know him. And so God had allowed the Assyrians to live, and the Ninevites had established this big place. It was very wicked, but God's patience was coming to an end. See, sometimes it seems like you can get away with a lot with God, but really it's just because he is kind and loving and patient. But remember, he is also just, and he is holy. And God's justice and holiness demands that he respond to our sinfulness. And remember... That one of the laws of the universe, one of the spiritual laws of the universe is that the wages of sin always leads to death. 
God cannot change that law. It's in a set, established law. And so God knew that the Ninevites' sin had been filling up. It's kind of like there's a big pool and it's just filling up with sin. And the time was coming where God could bear with it no more and it was time for him to shut them down. So God speaks to his prophet Jonah and says, I want you to go preach to them. In case I forget to say it later, and I know that you know the rest of the story, this is a very familiar story. If not, it reads very easily and you can familiarize yourself with it. We're going to read just chapter 1. But if I forget to say it later, you know that Jonah, if I say Noah, you know I'm talking about Jonah, um, that Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites and that they did repent. They did. And do you know that it, that, it gave, that God gave them about another 150 years on the timeline. Instead of destroying them in three days, God gave them 150 years because the king and all the country repented. And then later on, for you history buffs, King Nebuchadnezzar, the one in the book of Daniel, well, he swept through that country and utterly destroyed them. And no one ever even knew where they lived until 1848 when they found the spot and they dug it back up. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's read chapter 1 of Jonah, God's will for dummies. We're going to use Jonah as an illustration. We want to see him. How did he react to the word of God? How did he live out the will of God? And what are some lessons that we can learn from his life so that we don't have to spend the rest of our life experimenting with the will of God? We can look at his life and we can learn, okay, this did not work for Jonah, so I'm not going to do it. This did work for Jonah. I can do that. A little bit like driver's ed, so that you learn how not to run stop signs. You can you understand from watching a video in driver's ed that when you run a stop sign, bad things happen. And so they teach you this stuff in the classroom so you don't have to go out there by trial and error. And young people, that's my heart today, that we would get God's will, some basic tenets, some basic principles of God's will down so that we don't have to poke around and experiment and scar up our lives, doing all kinds of dumb things, trying to figure out where God's trying to get me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, a different city, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord and also far away from Nineveh, by the way, the opposite direction. But the Lord hurled, I like the way the ESV says that, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This is the second Sunday in a row, parentheses, that we've had a message that involves a storm and some wind. And remember last week we talked about uh, the psalm that says that God has the wind in a storehouse. It's like he's got a big warehouse with shelves and boxes full of wind. And God grabs a box or a can of wind off the shelf and hurls it at, at, tar, at the sea there where Jonah is. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Little G noticed they were pagans too. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God 
The God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain also spoke in the terms of a little g God. He was a pagan. Ironically, in the story, the only God-fearing man really was Jonah, and he was a mess. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots at the end of verse 7 is where we are, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. That's one of the most remarkable verses in all the Bible. Then they said to him, What shall you do? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Notice that Jonah would rather die than do the will of God. That's, That's incredible. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, they became converts exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What I'd like to do fairly rapidly is I would like us to look at three truths or three lessons for those who want to live for God. Three lessons about God's will for those who really want to live for God. And you know what? I think that's most of us in this room. I think it's even most of our young people. The fact of the matter is, I don't wake up in the morning and say, now how can I mess up the rest of my life? Well, what can I do that could be really stupid, that would really cause me grief the rest of my life? Almost no one does that. Once in a while I've encountered young people who do that. But almost no, no young people do that. But the problem is if we're not careful and we just go the way of the flesh, we go the way of the world, and we're vulnerable to Satan's schemes, we end up making decisions outside the will of God that do indeed impact us negatively sometimes the rest of our lives. In our discussion of God's will for dummies, the three lessons that we want to be sure and learn for those who do want to live for God, lesson number one is, seen in verse one, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Notice that for Jonah, and this is true for believers throughout the centuries, number one, that the will of God is indiscernible apart from the word of God. Let me say that again. The will of God is indiscernible apart from the word of God. We don't know how God spoke to Jonah. We just know that he did. And we know that Jonah understood that it was God who spoke to him. Listen, we are a privileged people. We have the word of God. It is remarkable to me how many young people stress out over where they're going to college, who they're supposed to marry, whether they're supposed to buy a Ford or a Chevy. That's a real easy decision, by the way. Ask Rich Beto. And... And they don't pay attention to what God has written in his book. They're rebellious towards their parents. 
They're flipping off their pastor and their teachers. They don't care what's going on. They've hardened their heart. They don't read the word. They've got a whole book in the Bible, Proverbs, that is filled with wisdom for daily living. And they're not reading the book. And God has spoken. And I want to tell you something. The greater scheme of the will of God for your life will be indiscernible if you're not paying attention to the word of God. There is so much here to just pay attention to. In fact, it's going to be a lifelong journey, young people. You will spend the rest of your life just, just receiving what God says in his word. And, and, you know, I find that a lot of the, the outlying decisions, you know, whether I should marry a blonde, a brunette, or a redhead, what does God really want? That those decisions fall into place when I'm a student of the book and when I'm paying attention to what God has revealed we end up violating so many of the clearly stated principles of God's Word. Here's how God's Word works. Let's just click this off really quickly. How does God's Word influence my decision-making with the will of God? Here's how. The first principle is, has to do with, number one, with direct commands from the Word of God. Direct commands or specific instruction. Okay, so here's what I'm talking about. God has specifically spoken about a number of things. Okay, so you fall in love with this girl, you fall in love with this guy, and then you find out that they're a Buddhist. Or you find out that they're a nothing. They don't know Jesus. So immediately, you know God's will for your life. Do you know that? Because God has spoken in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and he has specifically said that we don't have fellowship with unsaved people like that. Not at that level. And so immediately, I know I can't go out on another date. I don't marry this person. This is not spouse material. But what do we do? We say... Oh, but he's really, really cute. I really like that guy. Um, maybe it's okay to just kind of be friends. No. See, you are already messing with your own theology. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute. Because God has spoken. And there are many, many, many things upon which we build our lives that God has spoken clearly. Thou shalt not steal. I know that anything that involves stealing is outside of the will of God for me. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Your boss comes to you and says, hey, you're going to get a phone call today from Central Dispatch. Tell him that the stuff is in and it's on the shelf. And really, it's going to be two more days. Your boss just told you to lie, to bear false witness. You know right there, right then, the will of God for your life is to disobey the boss. God has spoken. All right? So that's why we need to be students of the word, because there's direct command and specific instruction. The second way that God's word reveals God's will to us, number two, is biblical principle, biblical principle and practical application. Biblical principle and practical application. So, this means that I'm going to have to make some decisions in my life that the Bible has not specifically spoken to. Have you ever seen that? All right, it's like, okay, I have to buy a car. Does the Bible say I should buy the red Mustang? Because I've been praying about it, and I feel really certain I'm really certain, and I heard a song that really influenced my thinking too, and I don't have a job, I don't have any money, and I have credit card debt, but the guy is going to give me the brand new Mustang on a new line of credit, zero down, zero percent interest, and it's only going to be $699 a month for the next 39 years. And so God has really opened the doors for me. No, that's utter nonsense. 
You don't even need to ask your dad. You don't even need to ask your pastor. The Bible has already spoken about that. The Bible has already spoken to you about debt. There are principles involved here. There are financial management principles in God's word. See, though it doesn't talk about a red Mustang and credit card debt, there are principles basic to the essence of Christian living and how God wants us to order our lives that speak to the point. And so I can determine things that are or are not God's will based upon principle and what he's spoken. Number three is wisdom principles. So the number two was biblical principles and, and practical application of God's word. Number three is wisdom principles and godly counsel. How does God make his will known to dummies? Through specific command and instruction, through biblical principle and and application. Number three, through godly counsel and wisdom principles. Now, here's how this one works, okay? God has not spoken about what I'm supposed to do with my summer. I'm in college. I need money for college. And I'm, I'm working up on the Yukon salmon fishing. This is a true story. And I need to go work and get money. And uh, I've been praying about the next summer. And all of a sudden, one of the, one of the guys in, uh, in leadership at the Bible college comes up and says, Van, I want to talk to you. And he talks to me about the need that they have for traveling that summer on a, on a team that's going to sing and preach and lead young people. And I've been praying about it, and I think that you should do this. And I said, but what about my money? He said, well, God is going to provide that, and here's what we can provide. And so through this godly instruction, I made a decision about God's will for the summer of 1981 and traveled all over the United States instead of was up on the Yukon fishing for big money. All right? Godly counsel, wise counsel, so important. Find godly people who can influence you with their insight. And this is why young people, almost always, those people are not peers. One of the most dangerous counselors in your life, even though it's one of your favorite counselor, is your peer counselor. Very dangerous counselor. Find somebody, and I want to tell you, you don't like this, but find somebody that's at least 20 years older than you are. That will help you a lot. It takes a humble heart because you think they don't even know how to get out of bed in the morning if they're like 39 years old. But I'm telling you. God has put a lot of people around you. That's how God uses his word. The fourth one is the hardest one to define. And God uses his word by speaking to us through prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I want to be very careful with this because this is sort of a mystical feeling-based way of determining God's will for my life through his word. One thing I know that if I pray and I wake up in the morning with this feeling that The Spirit of God is leading me. If any of that contradicts the written Word of God, I know that it's not true. I know that it's just my flesh. I know that it's just my desires. And I have lots of those. You know, the bass boat that I want to buy, the big game hunting trip to Alaska, the bow hunt moose. It's really God's will. Well, how do you know that? God told me last night. But then you wake up and your wife tells you, you know that's not true. All right? So you can do all kinds of things. But here's what I'm talking about. And let's use Ryan and Pam for our illustration this morning. Okay? Ryan didn't get a chance to talk that long. He did say briefly in his testimony, he said, God woke me up one morning. 
And that's really a pretty neat part of Ryan's story. He's a youth pastor over here at, at New Life Community Church and uh, serving the Lord, trying to reach teens with the gospel. And then one morning, Ryan's testimony, I'll give it for you, is that okay? Is um, that God woke him up about, say, 3 o'clock in the morning, and he couldn't go back to sleep. And all of a sudden, some things that he had been thinking about just really came together in his head. I'm looking out at the audience, and I can point at a couple people who've had experiences like this, where God just brought some thoughts together, you begin to write them down on paper, and you had this vision for a ministry that you know God wants you to do. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't say, Joe, wake up and do this. But you have been praying, you have been obeying the, the Word of God, you've been learning the Word of God, and now through prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit, you have a growing conviction that God wants you to do something. For Ryan, life experiences and conversations had brought him to a place of realization that there was a demographic that was being flushed down the drain, and it was the children of our worldwide missionaries. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, he is wide awake. That doesn't happen very often unless he's going bow hunting. And he sits there, and his mind just races, and you couldn't go back to sleep. Isn't that what you told me? And now if you pick up his paper out on the counter, he's got this five-point plan that is outrageous and ridiculous. It'll never happen, Ryan, I'm telling you. No, you know what? You know why Ryan's... No, this is God's will for my life because God spoke to me about this. Listen, that's a dangerous way for a 17-year-old to speak. But for somebody who's been walking with the Lord, somebody who's been learning the Word, somebody who's been walking in obedience, when God begins to stir like that, you know it, your wife knows it, God knows it, and that's the only three that need to know it. And don't you ever back down from it. If you're convinced, it's of the Lord. And that's how God makes Himself known to us sometimes. Well, that's just a few thoughts He tells us through his word, number one is, we're only on point number one of a 90-point message, (laughs) that the will of God is indiscernible. The will of God is indiscernible apart from the word of God. And God's word is made known to us, A, through direct command and specific instruction, B, biblical principle and practical application, C, wisdom principles and godly counsel, and sometimes D, through prayer and the quote-unquote leading of the Holy Spirit. That's how God makes himself known to us, through the Word. Well, let's move on in our story. Back to Jonah as our exhibit A on God's will for dummies. The second thing I want you to see, for those who want to follow God, along with number one, that the will of God is indiscernible apart from the word of God, is number two, the will of God is illogical apart from a heart for God. The will of God is illogical apart from somebody who has a surrendered heart for God. I won't camp on this, let me just tell you this. I suspect that part of the reason that Jonah headed for Tarshish instead of Nineveh, is because he was embarrassed to tell his church that he was supposed to go to Nineveh. That's like standing up and telling everybody God called you to start a a coffee house ministry to Al-Qaeda. You going to do that? Kill those suckers. Get them. Don't, Don't share Jesus with them. If you're not committed to Christ, if you're not really consumed with a passion for God, the will of God, sometimes for your life where he's going to take you, is illogical. I remember standing up at my spring concert of symphonic band at Vicksburg High School in 1978 
And God had called me to go to Appalachian Bible College to enter the ministry full time. And the seniors every year at the spring concert had to go down the line and say where they were going to be in the fall. And so when it was my turn, it was... Because I was embarrassed to say I was going to Appalachian Bible College. Everybody else was going to Michigan State to study computers. See, if you don't have a heart for God, if you don't have a heart for God, you're going to be embarrassed about the will of God in your life. And you need to move through that. The will of God is illogical. It doesn't make sense to go do things that God has called you to do if you don't really have a heart for God, and it'll never work anyway. Number three, the will of God is individual and yet a part of the bigger plan of God. Number three, let me say that again. Number three, the will of God is individual, and yet it is a part of the bigger plan of God. Here's all I mean on this. God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh. Okay? That is God's will for Jonah's life. You go to Nineveh, preach the gospel. But what is God's will really all about in Jonah's life? It's all about the 600,000 people in Nineveh. You see, God's will for Jonah has more to do with other people than it really does himself. Do you see how Jonah mucks it up, though, by going the opposite direction? He just uh, runs interference for God instead of being a usable vessel in the hand of God to accomplish whatever he wants for him. God's will for your life is often more about other people than it is you. Jonah goes to Nineveh, but he rose up to flee to Tarshish in the presence of the Lord. By the way, if we took time to go to chapter 4, the drama that the young people did was a good reminder, wasn't it, that we need to have on our, our Jesus lenses when we look at people? Because, as I just referenced in point 2, I think that part of Jonah's problems was he hated the people in Nineveh. They, they were a problem. They were everything. They represented everything that he did not represent. And God said, out of my love and kindness, I'm drawing them unto myself. I want you to go be my messenger and give them the gospel, the story of my love and my commands and how they are to order their lives according to my word. Okay? But in chapter 4, do you know what it says? In chapter 4, you can take time to look this up later. It's very powerful. Jonah is having a conversation with God. This is when he goes and sits up on the hill because he's really hoping that even though he preached and the king repented and the whole community repented, he goes and sits up on the hill to watch the city because he really wants to see God burn it. Because, and he even says, he says in the beginning of chapter 4, he says to God, he says, the whole reason I ran to Tarshish is because I hate these people and I knew you would forgive them if I preached the gospel. He doesn't say I hate the people, but that's what he meant. I would rather see those people burn and die. You got any problem people in your life that you'd rather see crash and burn than turn to Jesus? I'll tell you, it's a tough one. When you really can't stand somebody and God's will for your life is to interface with them, what are you going to do? It's very difficult. That's what Jonah's problem was. Let's, let's pick up a couple pointers before we land this plane about those who want to run for, from God. Okay, there's three thoughts about those who want to live for God. Number one, the will of God is indiscernible apart from the word of God. Number two, the will of God is illogical apart from a heart surrendered to God. Number three, the will of God is individual and yet it is a part of the bigger plan of God. Now for those who want to run from God, that's for somebody who wants to live for God. But Jonah is exhibit A on the guy who wants to run from God. That's easily documented. 
Let me just quick rattle these off and we'll wrap up. Lessons for those who want to run from God. Let's look back at our text. Arise, go to Nineveh, verse 2. That's the direct command from the word of God, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Lesson number one for those who want to run from God, number one is there will always be another possibility in your life. There will always be another possibility. If you really don't want what God wants, just look around. There will be 39 things that will pop up. I remember I was committed to the ministry. I was committed to, to being in Bible college, and I had finished two years, and I was working in Alaska, and a guy walks up to me and says, Van, if you stay here and work, I got a job up on the slope working for BP. 25 bucks an hour. The year was 1980. 25 bucks an hour. Just stay here. Great, great possibility. Pay cash for school, have a down payment on a house, buy a diamond for a girl. No. Say no, go back to school, get in your desk and study the word. Okay? If you want to run from God, there will always be another possibility. And so Jonah found a ship. It wasn't that hard to do. Young people, it's not hard to not follow God. It's not hard. Lots of people are doing it. It even looks fun sometimes. Number two, there will always be some bad theology in your life. Number two, there will always be some bad theology. Notice what Jonah was doing. He's running from what? From the presence of the Lord. Remember earlier I said he knew he had parts of the Bible. One part of the Bible he would have had was in, the, in our Old Testament, Psalms 139. Clearly, the, the Apostle Paul says there, David says there, um, David says in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, that no matter where you go, if you go to the highest part of the universe, if you go to the deepest part of the earth, no matter if you go to the darkest room or darkest spot, or whether you're in the light or out of the light, no matter where you go, you cannot flee from God's presence. And Jonah understood that, probably had that passage memorized. And I want to tell you something. This is very important, and I see it in adults all the time as well. I might even see this one in adults more than in young people because adults have already hammered out a little bit more of their biblical theology. And when we begin to sin and when we begin to edge away from God's will and when we begin to run from God, you can count on it. You will almost always tamper with your theology. And Jonah tampers with his theology and he says, I'm going to run from the presence of God. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get away from God's people, God's temple, God's area, God's zone. I don't want anything to do with it. And he begins to convince himself of things that aren't even true. So one of the things we have to do is we have to learn to listen to ourselves. And when we hear ourselves saying stupid things like, I'm going to run from God, you better wake up and smell the coffee. I had a guy on my back porch one time on his motorcycle parked on my curb, had his helmet under his elbow. It's always funny to me when guys come and tell me what they're going to go do in sin. I'm their pastor. Guy's leaving his wife, cleaned out the bank account, and he's leaving, and he stops by his pastor's house to tell him what he's doing. Something fishy about that. And he says, I'm out of here. I'm getting on my bike, and I'm leaving. And I just said, go. I hope you have a fast bike, or you'll never outrun the Lord. It's dumb, isn't it? You always alter your theology. Number three... There will usually be some sign, warning signs of catastrophe. Catastrophe. There will usually be the warning signs of catastrophe. Notice what happens in verse 4. Jonah 
in his bad theology, he's running from the presence of the Lord, which is impossible to do, but the Lord gets a can of wind off the shelf and hurls it at him, and that's a warning, isn't it? And I have noticed that people who run from God almost always have repeated and regular warnings of potential catastrophe coming down the pike. And if you pay attention, you would stop. And you say, you know what, I, I really have worked too hard and I've lived too long to turn my back on all this. And I'm going to lose it all here pretty quick. You know, I better learn to listen to my wife because the things she's saying are warning me that the way I've been behaving is heading us to the wrong courthouse for the wrong reason. And there's warnings and the wind begins to blow and the waves begin to roll. And Jonah is warned about potential catastrophe and he ignores it. I want you to also notice in verse 5 that there will likely be some unforeseen casualty. There will be some unforeseen casualty, unplanned, unforeseen casualty. Verse 5, the mariners were afraid. They cried out to their little gods. Of course, that does nothing. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. All of a sudden, because of Jonah's bad decision-making, some businessman in a port office somewhere is having his goods tossed in the ocean and he's losing money big time. And Jonah never intended to hurt that businessman. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of fishermen are ready to die out in the middle of the ocean. And he never meant to bring their lives into danger. He was just running from God. And I want to tell you something. When you run from God and you make stupid boneheaded decisions and you change your theology and you think you're something that you're not, you almost always suck a whole bunch of people along with you in a very negative way who you never intended to bring down. It might be your mom and dad by breaking their heart. It might be a little brother or sister who turns away from Christ from watching your dumbness. But you will almost always have a residual effect that is negative, that you never planned. Just a couple more and we're done. I want you to notice then in the end of verse 5 that there will often be an escape from reality. There will often be an escape from reality. But Jonah, the end of verse 5, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was... Fast asleep. What's that all about? You know what that's all about? That's about a man who is exhausted emotionally and spiritually and just wants to get away from everything. And he doesn't have a bar to go drink himself silly. So he goes down, covers his ears, and goes to sleep to escape the realities of his life. And how many times when people are running from God, they start getting into stuff to escape their reality? Start drinking like crazy. Start smoking and swallowing stuff they should never smoke or swallow. Start getting into illicit relationships they should never be involved in. What is that all about? It is about covering up the noise of God's cry calling out after me that I can escape this reality. I want you to see that it results almost always then, verse 17, let's just jump ahead. It will almost always, when you run from God, result insignificant misery. What must it have been like to be Jonah when they're laying heavy hands on him and throwing him overboard? It's over. He really thought it was over. It's like, I have been so stupid, it doesn't matter, it's just over. And they threw him overboard. And for three days, he had an incredibly miserable experience in the belly of the fish. Until, until our final lesson is that along the way, there will be, by God's grace, another opportunity Along the way, number whatever, I don't know what number we're on now. Along the way, there will be, by God's grace, another opportunity. Notice the beginning of chapter 3. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, this is after he's been beat up for three days. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it that message, the message that I tell you. So then Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Wouldn't it have been a lot easier to just do it the first time? A whole lot easier. A whole lot easier. But don't you thank God for like the prodigal son who has his head down in the pig slop and comes up for air and says, I could just be a servant at my father's house and do better than this. And Luke says, and when he came to his senses, he realized there was another opportunity. Young people, I want to challenge you and God's will for dummies that Going with God means paying attention to the Word of God. Running from God means taking yourself out from underneath the blessing of God. Don't keep in your hip pocket the concept of God's grace. We revel in God's grace, but we don't go do sin. Paul said, God forbid that we would go do sin, counting on the parachute of God's grace to bail me out in the nick of time. That's not, what God, that's not what Jonah did. Jonah was just mule-headed, but by God's grace, he had another opportunity. Young people particularly, and adults as well, I think that it's so important for us to be students of the Word, accountable in the body, encouraging and praying for one another, so that We accomplish God's will and purpose in our life. Young people, as you attend Teen Week this week, listen well. It's been a lot of fun. Invite your friends. Let God's word impact your life, lives, and make decisions today to live for Jesus tomorrow. You will never regret it, ever. Psalm 84, 10 through 12. The Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. That's the truth. That's the word of God. That's the will of God for your life. Amen.